Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, October the 5th, 2022, and this is episode 3176. It's also the first kind of regular episode since I got back from the Self-Reliance Festival. Yesterday we had our... Tuesday coffee chat with uh, Nicole, John, and Jack. Of course, Nicole Sauce from Living Free in Tennessee, and John Willis from SOE Tactical Gear, and then me, myself, and I, Jack Spierko from, well, you know what it is because you're listening to the Survival Podcast. Anyway, today I have a guest on because it is a Wednesday. We have Andy Cicerone. Um, we're going to be talking about permaculture beyond human food production systems. And uh, actually, Andy phrases it as beyond permaculture. I disagree. Maybe we'll chat about that. I'm not sure. But what we're talking about here is permanent agriculture that is designed more for the ecosystem itself, uh, native wildlife, uh, overall systemic health of the ecosystem, or even other materials that humans might use other than food. I don't think anything about that isn't permaculture. I'm going to be interested to hear his explanation when I discuss this with him about not how is it different than permaculture, but what makes it not permaculture. I, I just see zone four, zone five permaculture here, but I think it'll be an interesting discussion. I'll tell you straight out of the gate, Andy is definitely a guy that we I probably have quite a few disagreements with politically. He's definitely more from the left. I've always said when it comes to permaculture, leave your politics in your back pocket. Uh, we'll do that today as much as we can. And, Plus, it gets brought up. I'm interested in ecosystems, right? <laughs> not politics. Um, but I think it's also important to get viewpoints from outside your own little bubble. I think that's one of the biggest problems that, uh, that both the left and the right have. I, I consider myself affiliated with neither, non-affiliated, not independent, just non-affiliated with the political spectrum at all. And uh, I think both sides are really good at staying within their bubble and then labeling everything outside of their bubble tribe bad. So we'll try not to do that today. And I do think it's an interesting discussion. Uh, sometimes when you're hearing these intros, I've already had the discussion. In this case, I have not. I'm ahead of the game today. I want to get that done. I did I did pause for a bit today. I want to tell you guys this. I just thought it was really cool to watch. I watched, and this is such a great thing about homeschooling. I just watched Falcon 9 Rocket lift a dragon uh, dragon crew capsule in outer space, and that was amazing. And I was able to sit there with my six-year-old granddaughter, my 11-year-old grandson, and we talked to them. My wife and I talked to them about our memories when we were very young of the, uh, the Challenger uh, exploding uh, in a very tragic day and how, how much this contrasts with that and the concept of a rocket landing on a platform. And being reused, which is something that nobody, that's why we had the shuttle, right? Nobody even ever thought we would be able to do that. And what this does for space exploration. And as we, we start looking at exploring further and further into space and even potentially having some sort of fight, argument, conflict, dare I say, God forbid, even war about who controls the South Pole of the Moon. I won't get into why that's important today. Maybe we should focus a little bit more on, you know, radar here, terra firma, Earth. Um, I can't remember the poet, but there was a poet 
that I, I remember very much the kind of last lines of the poem. It was something to the effect of, as we stare, stare at distant worlds, mankind has clearly shown he has yet to fully comprehend the beauty of his own. And maybe that's, that's what we need to be talking about today with our guests, how we can improve the beauty and stability of, of, of our own world before we start talking about terraforming Mars. Anyway, before we get the, 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 our special guest on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is J.M. Bullion. I have been working with J.M. Bullion, I guess it's 10 years now. It's about 10 years. That's a long time to have a sponsor in the podcast world, isn't it? And there's a reason. Better pricing than like Lear Capital, Monex, Atmex, all those guys. Same silver, same gold, better price. Free shipping on all orders. Uh, absolutely the ability, if there is ever some sort of hiccup or problem, and it happens very rarely, but when there is, to get straight to the president of the company and say, hey, can, can you make sure somebody takes care of this person for me? And always having them do it. Uh, pretty amazing in 2022 uh, for a company that size, for just a lowly podcasting redneck hippie duck farmer to be able to get right to the president in seconds with an email. Anyway, check them out today. You'll see why you, if you're going to be buying silver or gold, you should be buying it from JM Bullion. Uh, people often ask me, well, crypto or, or, or uh, silver and gold? And I was like, yes. Uh, and, and just turn crypto into Bitcoin. Bitcoin, silver, and gold are all forms of hard money. Uh, check out JM Bullion today. I believe in true diversity. Diversity doesn't mean I have five different mutual funds. I have different, entire different classes of assets. Real estate, check. You know, silver and gold, check. Precious metals, check. Bitcoin, check. Food store, check. All these are tools, skills, all these are forms of wealth. Next up today, you need some place to carry around the small amount of wealth and identification and things like that in your life that you need to conduct business when you're not at home. That's why you need to check out the Ridge Wallet. I've been carrying a Ridge Wallet now for over five years. Ridge came to me and approached me about five years ago and said, hey, we'd like to sponsor the show. I wasn't sure. They sent me some stuff, and I was like, this is great, and I've been carrying it ever since. I put my billfold away, went with the minimalist approach, and they've turned into a full-on EDC company. You need to check them out at RidgeWallet.com, and you need to remember both Jam Bullion and Ridge Wallet. Yeah, if you're a member of my member support brigade, you get discounts to both of them. No one gets you discounts on silver and gold, but Jack here at the Survival Podcast does, along with 10% off all purchases, not just on the wallet itself, but all purchases at RidgeWallet.com. With that, let's drop into the live feed with Andy. And with that, we are live, and I want to welcome our special guest, Andy, uh, from, tell me if I get this wrong, Poor Proles Almanac. Is that, yep. is that the name of your show? That is the name of the show. Awesome. Where'd that name come from? Where, 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 uh, so it was a play on Poor Richard's Almanac, you know, okay, so I this idea of like, uh, basically a practical, pragmatic advice for working class people. Um, and then kind of giving a little bit of a modern spin with like pro, like proletariat, the working class. All right. So we're here to talk about, you're calling it beyond permaculture. To me, it sounds a lot like zone five permaculture. Uh, maybe we'll talk about the difference of that in a bit, but how did, how did you get into permaculture in the first place? What was your experience and background with, with the permaculture movement? Sure. So I, uh, my parents are immigrants and they were farmers before they came to the U.S. And, uh, I, I grew up in that like urban, uh, you know, if you go through a, like a city and you've got all the like three families next to each other and there's the one with like the grapevines that go all the way to the fence and like every square foot is some kind of a garden. That was where I grew up. And, um, 
you know, I grew up, went to college, uh, didn't really want to be affiliated with that life, I guess. And, um, in that process became more, um, more aware of the, of the value of that and then started trying to get back into it and then kind of felt or went through that process of, okay, I want to do organic. And then what's after organic, like it's still chemicals. So how do I go from organic to like no chemicals? And you know, that, that typical rabbit hole that ends up at permaculture. So as I got into this idea of permaculture, I started taking classes and something about it still kind of felt off and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And um, at the same time, I started getting more into nature, into hunting and all these other practices. And they still kind of felt like different worlds, right? Like hunting, that that the natural world uh, is very different than like a permaculture food forest or, you know, whatever term you might use. And I was, it felt like something was missing. Like there was a, a bridge that didn't exist between these two, these two places. And uh, I became more aware of this concept called like agroecology, which is uh, a little bit more in alignment with bringing those two worlds together. And it's uh, basically instead of thinking about like with permaculture and food forests, thinking of the, the food first, it's thinking about what the ecosystem needs and how we can integrate that into what we want in terms of consumption and things like that. I mean, was so was there like a thing that you just really felt was missing from permaculture that sent you down this road? Yeah, and it was like, you know, you look at like a, a guild, for example, and you, you've got these layers to this guild, and they're all framed around like what we need as people, right? So you've got like a, a nut tree, a fruit tree, uh, you know, a grapevine, whatever, and you've got these layers, and they're really designed around either making the plant healthier by providing nutrients, you know, a, a chop and drop or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, it ultimately comes down to like, how do I create this guild so I can get food and do as little work as possible? Right. And there's nothing, uh, you know, inherently wrong with that process. However, I, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, how, how does this integrate into the, the natural world around us? And that's where, again, it felt like there was something missing in how that integrated in. Because if I have, uh, you know, uh, Let's say a hickory tree and uh, an apple tree and, uh, you know, a, a fruiting bush below it. Like, what are the relationships between those plants? There really isn't any. In many cases, those plants are coming from different parts of the world uh, because we are interested in them as consumers. Uh, but they don't have any relations with the, the natural world in that, you know, where I live in New England. You know, the, the blueberry bush might, uh, the hickory might, but, you know, whatever other fruit trees we bring in might not have any of those relationships with the ecosystem around us. And in bringing these foods in, we're not solving any of the problems of the ecological crisis that's going on. So how does, let's say, growing a lingonberry where a lingonberry is native solve an eco ecological crisis any better than growing a, a blueberry where a blueberry is not particularly native? Because, uh, you know, if we think about e ecology, like over, uh, you know, the, the last, say, 10,000 years, uh, the, the bugs, the bacteria, the fungi, all these different pieces co-evolve with the, the plants that grow in the area, right? And in that process, they become more efficient. That's why you have these specialist bugs that um, can only pollinate plants from certain uh, families. So these relationships aren't just because they specialize and like they want to kind of create their own niche. While that's true, part of it is also uh, energy conservation, energy efficiency. 
being hyper-specialized means you can use your energy as efficiently as possible. And that's what these bugs do by building these relationships. And when you start putting in plants that don't belong, and I'll say don't belong like very loosely, I'm not like criticizing sure. if somebody uses a blueberry. Um, but in that process, you're changing the way the ecosystem can be resilient against things like climate change. Yeah, I've always found like there does seem to be some level within the eco movement, permaculture movement, call whatever you want, that's like resistant to like non-native species. And as I look at the history of the planet before we even walked, the history of the planet is this constant movement of, of plant species and animal species across what we think of as borders. Yeah. So maybe we accelerate that process in some instances. We certainly do. But the concept of this thing only exists on this continent, and there's an ocean between it, and it actually getting to another continent is actually far more common than I think we as humans tend to believe. Um, there, there's been instances where we've had, like, mussels show up off the coast of Portland and, or not Portland, uh, Oregon and, 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 and Washington, and we, humans did this, and it turns out it's a branch that floated across the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, you know, like, so how far, and what I'm saying, not like criticizing your position more, how far do we take this attitude before we realize like a lot of it is the horses out of the barn as well at this point. Yeah. And those are all very good and valid points. The challenge is that because of like globalization, these things are, you know, it's one thing for a muscle to show up on a a branch. Uh, It's another thing for cargo to be uh, shipped every day, introducing new species. Um, You know, if you, if you take some time and start walking around and you start to have, uh, you start to know what the species are that are around you. Um, There's a quote from Aldo Leopold. That's something along the lines of um, the more knowledgeable you become about ecology, the more you realize you're looking at a destroyed landscape and you can't help but be, uh, incredibly upset about the the state of the ecology around us. And um, that, I think, really rings true as we don't realize how different the ecosystem looks today and how many of those relationships have been stressed. Um, and to your point, like new species have always traditionally moved across borders, uh, across oceans even, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think the problem is the scale of it and the fact that uh, in that process between you know, construction and uh, monocropping and all these other things, there's just too much strain at once from different areas, whether it's uh, desertification because of the changes in rainfall patterns. Um, again, the introduction of new species, clearing land for sub- uh, suburbs and like fr- grass front yards. There's all these different pieces that together are creating a more difficult uh, situation for these species to survive. And, and your, uh, to go back to your point as well, like in the long run, this will probably be a good thing. Like, it, you know, adding more species and allowing for more diversity is going to be on a long enough timeline. If we don't burn down the planet first, uh, a really good thing. Um, but we need to make space for those native plants and to give the, the keystone species in particular that exist here, the ability to weather the, the storm that we're going through uh, ecologically speaking. Yeah. I mean, I'm a person, I'm far more worried about, part of what you said there with this like clearing land for suburbs. Yeah. And and I'm actually far more worried about clearing land for fields of soy than I am clearing lands for suburbs because the the second one actually takes a lot more trees out of the equation. 
but like, I'm, I'm wondering, have you read the new wild by Fred Pierce that goes into all these invasive species and kind of done that dive? Because when I, when I've looked at that and got, I was really challenged by that book because I was always like, what's done is done, but we probably don't need to do any more. That was kind of my approach. And when I look at it, I, I realized that in most, there's like, there are some invasive species that have really jacked things up, right? Like that really should, like, Bringing the Chinese chestnut to America and wiping out the American chestnut. That's horrific or kudzu. But it's like 99% of these things end up being a net gain in the ecosystem that they're in, which is totally on its head from, yeah. from the, the thinking that I came from personally before I dug into it. Yeah. And I think, um, I, I have some qualms with that book. Uh, and Doug okay. Tellamy does a great job of, uh, breaking a lot of those things down. Um, you know, we're here in New England, we're seeing the effects of, um, you know, having these invasive species. Beaches are being taken out, uh, entire stands of beaches. They're, they're expecting there to be none left in the next couple decades. Uh, basically, you know, it's the American chestnut all over again. And it just, for, for whatever reason, doesn't get the, the same attention that, uh, we give to historical experiences like that. And um, this is just something that we're seeing. You know, you can look at the American ash tree. We're talking about, at this point, between the American chestnut, the ash, and the beech, three of the most important trees in the canopy of North America. Uh, like, that's that's not insignificant. Um, and, you, you know, what, one of the things that we're seeing is, as continued uh, forest uh, clearing happens, these invasives are working their way into forests where, because the way the landscape has been managed for generations hasn't provided the framework for it to be successful. And I'll explain what that means exactly. So if you walk around here in New England, one of the things you'll notice is that most of the forests are at least half pine, half eastern white pine. And that's an early succession species. It is long-lived, so it's very common to see it in older growth species or older growth forests. But um, you walk through and you'll see there's 30 foot pines underneath the 70 foot pines. There's no natural succession happening because of repeated clear cutting. And when there is clear cutting or there's clear, uh, any of the forest has an opening, you start to see those early succession autumn olive trees and things like that moving in. And, you know, there's some really great characteristics of autumn olive. I, I won't at all disagree with that. However, if you go, you know, to Lowe's or Home Depot and you see the autumn olives that are, you know, all across the parking lot, right? Like anywhere that's been like pretty degraded, you're going to see them basically popping up like a hedgerow. If you look underneath the canopy of those 20, 30 year old autumn olive trees, there's no new native trees growing underneath where you say, all right, they've created the conditions for, you know, hickories or even white pines to start coming up uh, as a successional process. None of that is happening. And that's because they don't have those relationships with the ecosystem around us. And they will eventually, like they absolutely will. It's just a matter of what. Cause like the, I live in Texas and our, our, our state says the biggest problem with autumn olives is they over improve the nitrogen in the soil to the point where native species that grow in nitrogen deficient soils don't grow. Exactly. I, I actually don't see that as a problem. Everything success is toward abundance. So those pioneering species are, 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 are to do just that. They would, success themselves out anyway. When you tell me a Home Depot parking lot, I'm more thinking that's probably the way that property's managed than Automolum bad, right? Like that, that's a plant I've used extensively and I have seen it cause massive results in a very harsh environment with 
other native species when, when managed correctly. So I, I wonder if it's more a management issue than, cause that's not what you're talking about is not a managed system, right? Yeah. And, that's, and there's, yeah. And that you bring up a really good point about management. Um, you know, we, we don't manage much of the landscape. And then there's also this additional layer of, if we are, you know, if you're growing food in your backyard and you say, all right, autumn olive is something that's really important. It does all these great things for my purposes on this landscape, right? If you sell your house and the person who buys it doesn't know or care, what are yeah. the consequences for that local ecosystem? Because those berries and those seeds travel so quickly, right? And, uh, you know, there's also the problem of you can't control if birds eat those berries and then drop those seeds someplace else. Um now, in terms of, uh, like improving the soil, uh, that's again kind of a, a human centric perspective on that because what ends up happening to all these neat, like where I live, uh, we have the, the pine barrens. This is a rare, rare ecosystem that's getting taken over black, by black locust. And I love black locust. I think it's a really awesome tree that can do some really great things. However, it's also it, native to the Northeast. It's native to about, uh, New York. So it's a little bit, uh, west of us, but because yeah. of climate change and, um, you know, suburbanization and all of these other things, it has worked its way into this ecosystem. And the problem is that it like autumn olive, it's increasing the, um, the nitrogen content of the soil and it's making it impossible for the native endemic species, which are already rare to no longer have a place to live. And it's like, you can make the argument that ecosystems change, but also having those diversities, uh, having, this very unique ecotone where it's very sandy, very poor soils where things over thousands of years have evolved to succeed. Um, like I, I personally think that's a problem. Like we, we mm. should be trying to protect these rare special ecosystems. Okay. I think that forest systems success into natural abundance over time. Yeah. So, and, and, then, and then you have glades and then you have kind of falling off. And I think like if you look at the, the the record you can see that occurring long before humans were moving anything around that there's millions of species of plants that evolved went extinct and were replaced prior to our existence and they weren't weren't all around massive catastrophic events like the, you know if you go back into like the, the the period where dinosaurs ruled the earth you can look at there was some we don't we still argue about it but there's some nobody disagrees there was some massive catastrophe but in what you would consider relatively stable periods of time, there's there's fossilized record of a lot of kind of turnover of species, uh, successing from one to the next. Not in the not in the modern conventional like you know stages of a forest, but in in, in the larger macro evolution of, of plant species. And uh, while that is true, I mean you can look at things like desert ecosystems that have always existed, and um, like there's like a, a problem with clearing it out for literal parking lots or uh, or Agreed. even uh, like bringing in things like food forests into a place where the the only way to do that is through uh, bringing in massive amounts of water uh, because the landscape simply can't support that much plant life. Um, like those those plants are highly developed for those ecosystems. Um, and uh, to go back to here in the Pine Barrens, um, we do get a good amount of rain, but the, the soil doesn't contain basically any of it. It basically washes right through. Mm. And sure, you can bring in nitrogen fixing plants and try to improve those soils, but you're moving those plants out that have evolved in this ecosystem. And then there's the question of, you know, 
how does that get managed in the in the future because it's no longer the ecosystem that um was there before hmm. so are you familiar with uh, something bill mollison referred to as the phasmid conspiracy uh that one i am not familiar with no i'm not sure the conspiracy was the right word for it um uh, it's from a transcript and lectures that he gave in florida back in the the 80s it's available uh is an archive. It was originally done at a place called Barking Frogs, Permaculture. And he, he's talking about even back then, the problem, for instance, with the, uh, the pines in like northern Colorado and the blue fungus beetle. And that fungus are the teeth of the forest and they're what takes the tree apart once it falls. And that we as humans have done so much damage to the planet that a lot of these systems are failing. It's not necessarily because this other plant showed up, but we so disturbed the ecosystem as a whole. That you've gotten literally to the point where some of these, like the ash borer, et cetera, or this is a beetle problem with these pines that are putting fungus into the tree, um, that literally the, the, the earth is trying to correct the problem and taking the tree out at this point and changing the ecosystem to adapt to the damage that we've done. And it may not be for good, but that's, that's literally how much damage we've done. Again, this is, This is a problem today that's kind of come to a head and people are really accepting it. He's talking about this about was 84, I believe, that he was talking about that specific issue. And I wonder how much of this has to do with things like destroying the fungal relationships in the soils, uh, et cetera, where a lot of these plants, they'll, they don't care what fungus they interact with. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and then the inev it inevitably uh, does have repercussions down the line that we, um, even today still really struggle to understand, right? That, um, you know, bringing in, you know, a Chinese chestnut, like we had no idea that was going to cause the consequences it did. Uh, and we're still doing that today. Uh, whether it's, uh, the way we manage the landscape, um, the way we react to the way the landscape is changing, or, uh, again, not even, uh, just simply like creating spaces for these, uh, native species to at least try to, um, stay in place and evolve with the new landscape giving you know if we think about like selection pressure like selection pressure is a good thing and that's i think what we're ultimately talking about right yeah yeah um, absolutely but we need we can't give too much selection pressure right and that's that's what we're trying to do is say all right not so much selection pressure that these species go extinct but enough uh like that that selection pressure is not going anywhere we really can't do anything about it at this point like no one is going to clear out all of the invasives it's never going to happen no um, but what we can do is understand the ecosystem as it has been what we can do to help it co-evolve with these new species you know almost like little kids like you want them to like you know respect each other enough until they can figure it out on their own and that's that's where we step in and we can control these relationships and utilize our knowledge of how these landscapes have been managed in the past to help make the future uh, incorporate all of these things, these natives and non-natives to basically play together in these ecosystems. So natives or non-natives aside, just speaking from a purely, let's focus on the needs of the ecosystem versus the needs of people. Where's the balance then lie between actually feeding a population of 8 billion people and, you know, having areas that are not for people? Because I think that there is an incredible need to come up with ways to feed people a hell of a lot better than we're doing now. I look at the most damaging thing that we're doing right now is mass, broad-scale, field-based agriculture in that 
the, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, the largest export our country, the United States has measured by tonnage is incredibly valuable. We do incredible damage with it and we get no money for it. And it's topsoil. We export more topsoil by tonnage and wind and water into our oceans than we do any other single thing that leaves our shores. And I can point the finger right at the Conagra, Monsanto's bears, the giant John Deere tractors on that. And so we need, like, if you just shut that, so like, I'm also not an advocate, like, well, let's just shut it off. Okay, so I don't want half the people on the planet to die, you know, in a year. Uh, and some of the stupid crap they're doing, it may not be half, but you may see huge broad-scale famine in the next year. Um, how do we balance this? How do we get systems that actually feed people and restore the ecological systems that we used to have? Yeah, and that brings up a really good point, and I think is – like permaculture kind of gets us to start thinking that way, right? Where it's how do we work with the ecosystem around us? How do we make food local again? Um, but it's easy to forget that these landscapes have supported like a very dense populations, far denser than um, historians have thought up until recently. And uh, we just have to, again, decenter our place in it and understand that maybe the food we eat doesn't necessarily look like what we've traditionally eaten at the grocery store, right? Um, you know, like I'll, I'll pick on acorns. You know, oaks are an important species for just about everywhere in North America, right? Yeah. Um, and they're also an incredibly highly nutritious crop that can be ground into a storable flower. Um, they're something that's brought up in permaculture, but it definitely doesn't occupy a, a central role, right? Even though historically they were a very central crop in North America. And I think given the technologies we have today, the resources, the understanding of genetics and all the things we've been able to accomplish, there's no reason that we can't start thinking about how do we, uh, I don't want to say like manipulate, but um, work with the species that improve our local ecology, but can also feed us. That's not something that's really out of, I mean, you think about the money that's spent on uh, corn genetics. And if we took a tenth of that and applied it to foods that have been on this continent for uh, thousands of years, whether it's ground nuts or acorns or, you know, any of those other things that are already here and can be incredibly valuable for us as uh, consumers, as humans, and as uh, something that can contribute to our local ecology. So just real quick for our international listeners, a lot of people hear ground nut and think peanut. He's talking about Apis Americana which is a tuber that grows, it really grows really well on like creek banks and things like that. I, I grow them here in some of my systems. I actually had, saw you at a show with the guy from the LSU project on that. And I have several of those varieties out of that thing here on my property that I continuously give away to get people growing them because it was an amazing crop at one time. Uh, the thing on the acorns, though, I think it gets a little bit, oversold on on how used it really was it was more like there's a lot of work especially oh, prior to industrialization that goes into making even the best white acorn palatable for a human being to detanonize it so most of the native peoples to north america that used uh oak used it as kind of a last resort not a first choice so especially at a time when from the mississippi river to the atlantic ocean there was either chestnut or chinga pin everywhere to the point where farmers at one time would pull a horse-drawn cart into the forest with a number 10 coal shovel and load up a, a cart with chestnut to feed livestock. That's just how abundant that was. 
And yeah. to me, like that's something like I know we now have chestnuts, for example. And this is where actually I see like maybe the problem is the solution after all. We have crossbred with the Chinese chestnut over and over and over again. So genetically, we're only like one percent Chinese chestnut and ninety nine percent American chestnut, and the blight resistance is now being transformed. And it actually, I'm kind of just, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that the effort to actually rewild that because we have the chestnut now, we have the thing that'll do it, and there's no real effort to like reestablish the chestnut as a keystone species in the eastern United States. Yeah, it, it brings up, you know, you brought up the acorn and like there's definitely like an inverse relationship between uh, the processing time of any wild food and yeah. um, the the accessibility um, because like the things that are well protected like an acorn, um, they they don't need as much input from us like, you know, corn. Right. um Corn can grow like incredibly, right? We've, yeah. we've helped it genetically to grow like incredible volume, but because of that, it isn't very good at protecting itself, and that's where we kind of have to step in and say we're going to apply pesticides or you know, whatever we're going to do. Um, but there's a sweet spot, right? There's a sweet spot between uh, taking the technologies that we have, the resources that we have, to work with the crops like they did with Chinese and American chestnut, and find a middle ground between. Uh, something that's really difficult to process and something that can uh, grow without much input from us. Now, you brought – like I picked on oaks because historically uh, hickories were actually one of the major crops for like the Eastern Agricultural Complex um, and have been one of the staple crops across North America. Out in the West, acorns were much more common. Uh, chestnuts um, have kind of ebbed and flowed, and like the, there's a lot of different – you know, it's – I hate to use this phrase, but like there's more than one way to skin, skin a cat, right? Like sure. we have all of these things. It's about trying to figure out how to mix and match based on our local ecosystem and ecology and how we can do something, you know, that actually supports our ecosystem uh, as opposed to how we're growing food now or again, just importing crops because we like the food. I had the mic muted there. You probably saw some background noise. I'm being strafed by a military jet right now. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think like, so part of my solution to this is that there's an awful lot of animals that can use these things exactly the way that they are. Growing up as a deer hunter, I loved a good mass year of white oak. Now deer do not really, I mean, if a deer's eating a red oak, he's in bad shape. They don't want to do it. It's very, very tannic, but a good mass year of white oak and you had big, fat, happy deer. And I think there's a lot of these systems that we're developing that would be far better with not just wild animals in them like deer or elk, uh, but also like savanna mimic systems. Uh, a lot of these cornfields, if we could line, you know, lots and lots of trees, but have these alley grazing ways because we took the, the buffalo off the plains and, I would be fine with let's reestablish the Buffalo, but we have an interstate highway system in suburbs. And it's just, it's, it's not going to be a thing, right? So then yeah. you have to have something. And that's where I see kind of these two worlds coming together in a symbiosis. Like you have to have something that mimics the behavior of the animal, because honestly, the Buffalo, as we call them, the bison, as far as I'm concerned, saved this continent after the younger driest extinctions. Because we did have elk and deer and pronghorn antelope and a few other things, but mo those are all mostly browsing ruminants. No. The only heavy ruminant 
that survived that was the bison in, in you know, the lower 48 in Canada. And that is why the Great Plains of the United States exist as they did when we entered colonization. And the damage that's been done there, for instance, is, is, is massive. There's a reason that agricultural wealth became a, a, a thing in the United States outside of, you know, you can go back into the pre-Civil War, antebellum period with, with cotton. I'm talking about food production across the plains. And it was that topsoil that was built by that ruminant system. And the amount of ecological stability that system provided was massive. And I don't see how we get back there if we're not involving animals in the equation. Absolutely. And uh, to your point, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Natalie Mueller's research, um, but they did some uh, analysis bringing in buffalo and seeing the impacts on ecosystems and just incorporating them brought back species that were native and super rare back to the, to where they had grazed in places they hadn't seen them in centuries. Uh, Which is insane. Real, real quick, just before you continue. Yeah. It's insane to think about that. All you do is bring this one species back and then you have this restoration of these other species which means they were there, but they were in such thin numbers, you just didn't notice them. Yeah, and that brings me back to my whole point of, um, you know, how do we how do we center the ecology in what we're doing to create food systems? And by no means is that an easy conversation, and um, it, it's not a one or, or all or nothing, right? Like, we can still grow things that are non-native that we like and enjoy eating, right? We can still have annual crops. Like people aren't going to give up tomatoes and peppers and, you know, whatever else they like to eat. Right. But also native to North America. Oh yeah, they are, but not here in New England. Um, But that doesn't like, I I like to use the example of like craft beer, right? So like people get craft beer, you go to a brewery in your town or someplace you're visiting because it's some kind of representation of the place you're going to. Right. And we can do that with our food through our native ecosystems where we can think about it as not a, oh, I can't eat the things I've always enjoyed, but more of how can the place I live be more reflected in the way that I live? And in that process, we make those places more resilient to climate change, to uh, the supply chain, all of these different pieces. And that's a, a net benefit for everyone. What does your idea or this specific idea of eco-agriculture or ecosystemic-focused perennial crops look like? What, what does that look like if you had to – when I used to be in sales and marketing in a former life and I was selling a network solution, I would I would turn to the network administrator and say, if I no budget gave you a magic wand and you could wave it and make the network you want, what would it look like? Because then you could build the closest thing to what you wanted for them within, in reality – what would that look like for you in building an ecosystemic, sustainable, regenerative system that took care of both the planet and the needs of people? Uh, it would be, you know, communally focused. You know, I think about like where I live, there's a lot of uh, sugar maples in like a, a rural suburb. So the idea of like, okay, instead of everyone tapping their own maple tree, right? You have a cooperative. There's people, that's what in your community they want to do. They tap all of the maple trees. Everyone has one in their property or every other property, whatever it might be. And you, you create this network that handles that. You could do the same thing for grazers. Um, people would be able to, or people would have like a savanna prairie type ecosystem, uh, incorporating trees that will be native here in the future with climate change, things like persimmons, um, and you know, 
the the species that have traditionally been here selectively bred you know oak trees hickories black walnuts bringing up pawpaws into this part of the uh, country in the wetlands um integrating all of these food weight or food uh resources that are also going to uh not only come up the coast with climate change but also have a historical context which give them the the best uh resources genetic diversity to survive um, both the the native insects and native you know various uh, challenges pesticide uh, pests and so on, uh, but also um, are a net positive for our local ecosystem. So again, to use the the craft beer model, imagine going into a restaurant and you know all of the foods have come from a hundred miles away or whatever it might be, and those foods are based in this place with a context and a history that's so valuable. Much like we can go to like Maine and get lobster and it's a, a certain experience, right? We can do the same thing, but for all of the foods that we consume, right? Yeah. And, and so I guess then my question really comes down to how is any of what you're saying actually not permaculture? Right. So it's, it's not like, how is it different? Like I, all I'm hearing is this is my design style within the fabric that is permaculture. Because here's my requirements for something to call a permaculture. I take responsibility for myself and that of my children. It cares for the earth. It cares for people. And it reinvests surplus from that back to the goal of the first two. If it does all that, it can fall under permaculture. So I, yeah. I, I have this conversation, not just with people such as yourself. I have this, uh, you know, I have this discussion with people. You know, I, I'm a regenerative farmer that grazes cattle. And that's different. And I'm like, that's just, I, I know it sounds like we co-opted everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, but, but that's kind of how I feel like that. That is, there is no, there is no solid, well-recognized permaculture teacher that teaches an end to the design. Like this is where the design philosophy terminates. If sure. that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I think good okay. permaculture instructors follow what I'm talking about. Right. Um, but I think we both know in our experiences uh, that it's not always that case um, that, you know, th- the first thing that kind of s- like when I think about permaculture is when you see uh, I'm a permaculture instructor. I've, you know, in- uh, consulted on three continents. Nobody has the no- the local ecosystem knowledge to consult on three continents. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and that, you know, permaculture, I think, in that sense, in that vein, um, not that what you were saying is wrong, because I agree with you. Um, can overwhelmingly sometimes instead of take the ecosystem first that's there, they will stamp on it what their prescribed understanding of what permaculture is. Like the landscape is a blank template. Like it doesn't have a history. Um, almost like we're going to clear cut what's here and start afresh because this is the right way. And, um, of course, like I said, good permaculture instructors won't do that. But there are many who will just say, this is what I've learned. This is what you should do. Um, and you see this in particular when you're dealing with like uh, lands where there's no trees, right? Because that's really easy. It's just a, a blank slate. It's an easy way to start applying some of these concepts. Um, but when you start getting, you know, into silvopasture and working with existing forests and how do you manage those forests in a way that you can steward them towards, um, you know, being more abundant for the landscape, for the ecosystem, it gets a lot messier. And um, I, I don't 100% disagree with you on the, the it can, depending on how you define permaculture, uh, fall under that, that, that kind of umbrella. 
but I, I do think in some ways the permaculture misses that historical context, uh, the lived experiences of the people that have been on that landscape and how they have stewarded that landscape. And uh, I think that misses a really important opportunity. I just don't say I haven't seen anybody as a permaculture instructor with a name that anybody that listens to this show anyway would recognize clear cut anything. Uh, well, I've not seen that. I've seen a lot of people that do things that call it permaculture and they have absolutely no idea of the ethics and the grounding that is permaculture. It's become, uh, well, let me finish. It's become sure. unfortunately, cause like one of the greatest blessings was, was Mollison and, and Holbrook kept it out of the hands of the university system. They kept anybody from owning it, anybody controlling it. They've, they made it a truly decentralized movement. And that's a blessing. In, in some ways, it's a curse because since anybody can use the word, especially in a world where if I get enough views of a video, I'm going to make a thousand bucks. Anybody will use the word in any way that they choose. So I think we have to be really cautious in what we refer to as permaculture. And 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 I am kind of a purist in it that if it doesn't at least follow the the initial guiding principles that were laid down by Holgram and Mollison, then it, then it, it isn't right. So clear cutting a forest would be a perfect example of something that fails the second ethic really, really hard, or first ethic really, really hard. Well, uh, I guess you won't call Jeff Lawton a permaculturalist then, uh, because that's what he's prescribed in the Dayak uh, region where they've practiced Sweden agriculture for thousands of years, uh, where he, uh, was consulted by the government or I'm not actually sure who was the person that consulted him. Uh, it might have been a nonprofit to go into, uh, the, the Dayak region and basically told the folks that lived there that had been there for thousands of years, the, the Sweden agricultural system wasn't uh, wasn't correct and that they needed to apply, uh, permaculture. So that they, or he's, he had worked with them or guided them, whatever term you want to use, um, to clear cut where they were and plant, a, a, a proper food forest, uh, which if you're not familiar with the Sweden agricultural system, it's basically a slash and burn. And, uh, I know some people have initial reactions that that's not a good system, even yeah. though it's, uh, been highly successful across the globe. So if you're slashing and burning, you're clearing. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, so I, but, you know, it's a different mechanism of clear. So I, I, since I'm not familiar with that, and since Jeff is a personal yeah. friend, I, the next time I have him on the show, I'll, I'll let him speak for himself on that. Okay. Because yeah. I'm uh, not going to, I'm not going to, I can't debate on behalf of something I don't sure. know anything about, right? No, I, but, I get it. Um, but for folks, if you're not familiar with the Sweden agriculture, the slash and burn concept, uh, it's what the Maya have done. It's what the Dayak have done. Uh, there's, Evidence suggesting that the Maya Sweden agricultural system, as it's even still applied today in Belize, um, is capable of supporting more people than um, monocropping. Uh, and that's like that's amazing because it gives us uh, some examples of you know how we can do this, how we can, again, think about what the ecosystem requires and make it align with our needs as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have data? that actually quantifies the difference between, let's say, a permaculture system growing traditional foods and a guild that's eco-focused? So, the, uh, I mean, it depends on what you want to use for, like, quantifiers. Um, for human consumption, I don't believe there is. For, uh, like, ecosystem benefits, there's absolutely a ton of work by folks like Doug Tallamy, 
if you're not familiar with him, he's written quite a bit. He's an ecologist uh, who's focused heavily on oak trees and ecosystem restoration. Okay. Do you, do you have anything beyond yes? Sure. So like, you know, he, he points out like the um, typical like Oak tree, for example, supports over 400 different insects. Um, okay. And um, like your typical invasive species supports, I believe the number he said is uh, 23 or 27, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, so like there's an order of magnitude of the importance of those native keystone species that uh, again, I don't think gets enough attention in traditional permaculture. Yeah, that's interesting because see what my problem right there with that is typical. Yeah. I see you're taking a specific species and comparing it to an aggregate average of an unspecified group. Sure. And And that's a weak scientific argument in my opinion. I mean, I, you know, I, then it becomes a, uh, you know, okay, well say the Chinese tallow tree totally agree. They're an abomination on the landscape. Yeah, and that's the thing is like, well, I, I mean, he might be actively doing the work. A lot of this is pretty novel research. Um, yeah. but the, the reality is that like that points to a, a trend in which, um, native species, especially keystone native species are particularly important on a landscape, right? And when we talk about permaculture, um, I don't think anybody in permaculture has provided evidence suggesting that other than anecdotal that uh, non-native species can support equal amounts of uh, insect diversity. Yeah, I would I would have to agree with that. I, I, where you thought you were going, I was about to throw some names out, but no, <laughs> insect diversity. I don't think anybody's even looked at it. I really don't. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know me, I'm just plant all the oak. How many oak trees should we plant? All of them. Yeah, all the oak yeah, trees. and and that's the thing is like for hunters in particular, I think they understand. Uh, more so than the average like gardener who wants yes. to just plant things in their backyard because I want food, uh, the the nuance and intricacies of how those ecosystems actually function, and uh, that's something that again, as when I got into hunting, I became more aware of that piece that I hadn't been aware, and again, it started bringing some of these things together, and it sounds like you've done some of that as well, yeah, um, and you're just incorporating that under a bigger picture of a permaculture that um, I think again. You know, you spend some time on a permaculture forum. The idea of how do I, how does this ecosystem that I'm creating give back to the wildlife, especially things that aren't like popular or sexy, like insects, right? Um, Not too many people are worried about like, you know, the, the, the various nematodes or whatever that might be in the, the ecosystem. Um, whereas I think when you start thinking about the bigger picture, that becomes more important. Yeah, I think one of the things that steers my viewpoint is long before I was I even knew the word permaculture, I grew up in the coal region of Pennsylvania, and so I have kind of a loathing hatred of the coal industry as a whole. Uh, and as bad as it is today, the the remnants of what I was able to look at as far as damage to the land were worse. It was, you know, the 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 30s and 40s and 50s were the heydays of what's known as strip mining, which is basically mountain removal coal mining, and it produced an incredible amount of ecological damage, uh, massive amount of acidification of soil, sulfur in the water. I mean, I, I remember streams uh, that I grew up around that were literally orange because there was so much sulfur in the water. The sulfur would oxidize. It was basically sulfur slime rust on the rocks, which, of course, kills everything in, in the creek. But I also was there, you know, at a time, you're talking the 1980s, 
where we did start to cap certain problems and say like, okay, you made a couple billion dollars off this, guys. You need to go at least prevent the shit from leaking out of the ground into the water anymore. And they forced a lot of these companies to do this. And a lot of the places, the damage kind of stopped being done. It was there, but they didn't have to go cap anything or, or it just, they did the damage and they walked away. And there were places that never came back because of things like zincs over, you know, too much zinc in the soil, which is burns. Like trees look like they're chemically burned when that happens. But at the same time, I watched forest secession, pioneer species restore these ecosystems. So you would see like the first thing that would come in would be like low value pines that could tolerate the acid nature. And the thing that would grow with them would be blueberries. And then over time, you would start to see a little bit of a white oak or red oak start to kind of come up in there. And the places that never came back were the places where they actually did what's called cold breaking, where they break the coal into smaller bits. And there's this coal dust that gets on all the rock that gets separated. And we called them black deserts. They're several acres or more of black. And you can dig a foot, two foot down. It's just the same stuff. And, you know, you get one little birch tree, like an island out growing in the middle of this crap. But other than that, the worst of the worst, you could see nature repairing it. It really wasn't until I got into permaculture heavily about 15 years ago that I could think back and relate to that recovery of nature. And, you know, part of what gives me peace is the fact that one day we'll be gone and it, nature will take it all back. And, and the, the planet has been literally wiped out before, long before we were here, and it's, and it's always taken it back. Uh, a dear friend of mine was a gentleman named Toby Hemingway. And I, I, I was speaking at a conference with him and I was just in the morning getting ready to go down, flipping through channels. And then we had breakfast after I found this, this TV show and it was either Chicago or some other huge city where these, uh, industrial areas had been abandoned. And it looked like something like at a temple out of Sri Lanka or so these trees were growing on the roof of like these four story parking garages and literally crumbling the concrete and taking things back. And I remember telling him about it, and he gets this wink in his eye. You know, this is not long before he passed away either. He says, see, it won't take long. And, and so part of me, that that's part of, of the way I look at it, that nature in the end will win because she's bigger than us. Yeah, I mean, nature. I'd rather work with her than against her, though. I, I mean, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it will it will take over. And like I said, uh, on, a, on a longer, you know, longer than us, our, our descendants, our descendants, descendants, um, you know, on a longer than that timeline, like it, this will all, this invasive situation will all settle out and it will probably be, uh, stronger in the long run because of it, right? There'll be more diversity because of it. As long as we can give those native species a chance to compete. Um, novel species have a really bad habit of doing some serious destruction, causing extinction, um, in, in that process, simplifying ecosystems, right? And what we can do by trying to work with the ecosystem, um, putting the needs of the ecosystem first in certain cases, um, we can help that process happen more quickly. We can we can uh, reduce some of that uh, pressure, the selection pressure, and uh, that's a net benefit for all of us. I think one of the reasons that we see, you know, some of this would definitely fall under zone five design. Like you, in an ideal situation, the largest zone on a property you manage would be native wilderness. And you, you'd have, but the problem is a lot of people that, I don't know if it's a problem, it's just a reality. A lot of people that get in and want to do this, they don't have a property large enough for that to be a thing. Let's, let's be honest. If you are, 
if you're managing a quarter acre suburban property, you could have a little butterfly area or something. It's like a tribute to zone five wilderness, but you, you, you just don't have wilderness. So if the opportunity's not there and we've been speaking at this broad scale for most of this interview. Yeah. But I know that like you are not an advocate of let's let everybody die. Like you're, you're you are for producing food for people. It's very yeah. clear. And that you do a lot of work with things like gorilla gardening. Like we, neither one of us are like anti annual. I, I think I get, I think people see if they haven't heard my work long term, they will, they'll get that opinion of me at times because I, I focus so much on the type of ecosystems that we're talking about right now. But could you describe the concept of gorilla gardening and how that helps feed people as well? Yeah, so uh, gorilla gardening has a number of different understandings of how it can be applied. But the, the general idea is basically utilizing spaces that have been uh, left to be unused. And I use the term unused loosely um, in the sense of they're – traditionally like you're not going to go in if there's like native trees native prairie habitat like clearing that out to plant some wild plant some lettuce or something but rather um thinking about how i can utilize my capacity as a human being to uh, make this this little you know whatever strip of land it might be to produce something good for myself or the environment or both uh, so like a really great plant for that would be like uh, the one we both love groundnuts uh groundnuts can do incredible work in places like wetlands that are often because of the zoning laws around how wetlands can be managed, um, basically left to, to just get taken over by invasives because no one manages them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a plant that requires the right environment. Having grown it here a bunch yeah. and, and the reason it has no depth of root system. That's why it likes these wet systems because it has no resi- It actually has more resiliency to drying out than a lot of people think. It will, it will absorb back from its own production and, and will, if as long as the water comes back, it'll come back in, in time. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a great plant. And what I found really interesting though about that plant is so I, I know like I said you had to do with the LSU project on your, on your show. And they did all these work to make like the nutty ground. There's like several varieties, like I said, I have and they do get really large. So a friend that listens to the show is like, and he lives in Maine, he's like, hey, man, I got really big groundnuts in my creek on my property. You want me to send you some? And these were just wild groundnuts. They were freaking huge. <laughs> they, I mean, I, they were as big as anything that I'd grown from this, you know, cultivated variety. Now, the other side was they didn't grow as large for me here. And it could either be because... He's in Maine and I'm in Texas. And even though I'm giving like I use wicking beds for these, so they stay constantly moist. Um, it could be temperature. It could be climate. It could be anything. Uh, but the, the ones out, so that would make me wonder. So what would happen if I take the LSU ones and send them up to him and he, he grilled them in a controlled system the way that I did? They might be even bigger. And that is a plant that, and I've done what I can to push it that needs more work. It was a, at one time, it was a commercial plant in, 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 in our history, in our very early history, but it's a long cycle harvest. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's, it's akin to asparagus and it, except that it continues to be like basically really a two year crop. Uh, Jerusalem artichoke, you know, yeah. native or not, you know, uh, was a commercial crop at one time. 
Yeah. And both of those crops, um, you know, you brought up the fact that it grew so big in Maine. Um, you know, that, that speaks to the fact that they evolved very quickly to their ecosystem and the, the, you know, the, the challenges around them, um, based on their local conditions. And those ecotypes are incredibly important and speak, you know, that's a microcosm of what we're talking about when we talk about native species and how they can evolve and co-evolve for their specific, uh, you know, ecosystem, uh, the climate, climactic changes, all of those types of things. And that's where I think in particular we can, we can, uh, use a lot of our resources that we've traditionally given to corn and soy and all, you know, imagine if we took, like I said before, a 1% or 5% towards, uh, Jerusalem artichokes, ground nuts, hickory, ac- uh, oaks, you know, all these different crops that are native, um, can weather the, the pests that exist here and are going to be ready for, you know, the, the changes we're already experiencing with like climate change. Yeah. Um, the, the history of this continent is one of forest forage management. If you go back to, again, prior to colonialization and it was such that the initial Europeans that came here didn't even realize what they were looking at. They didn't understand how the forest was being managed. It was very much toward the way that you're advocating. However, one of the things that the people that lived here and did that at the time did was they relied heavily on animals as food. I mean, massively, like for all the talk of how much corn people grew in the desert Southwest, the, the people that lived, especially in the Eastern United States and the Midwest, what we call the Midwest today, lived primarily on animals. Within the ecological movement, there is this massive push to turn everybody into a vegan or eating worms. <laughs> and insects have traditionally played a role in some society, and mainly insects have played a role where that was the best option, right? So a lot of the things you're talking about can feed just massive numbers of people, but you're either looking at, again, a mimicry system where we're talking about beef or lamb or something like that, or you're looking at a, a fully natural system or looking at some form of venison or something to that effect. How are those two worlds, worlds ever going to justify and get along with each other? Because I mean, you can't do what you're advocating and feed 9 billion people vegetables. No, you, you can't feed that many people vegetables. But, you know, I think about like, okay, so I'm going to bring up the milpa again because I think it's a really interesting, uh, model. So they would grow corn and in their, you know, polycrop, the, they would outline the polycrop with the corn that they enjoyed the least. And it was basically bait because they knew that the wild animals were going to come and try to eat their crops, right? So they would sit and hunt the animals as they would come and eat their crops. So there's a way to integrate these things together. And again, it's all about aligning the natural ecosystem with your needs as a human without, uh, at, without in, in this process, um, they were able to increase, uh, the population of the wild animals, increasing the proteins that they could eat, um, uh, while, you know, making the system around them better. So I guess to, to go back to your question of how do we do it, uh, it's probably a, a mix, right? Um, we can do, you know, those, uh, domesticated alternatives where necessary. The biggest challenge I think comes in like suburban areas because of property, right? It, it gets really messy when you start dealing with property lines, um, especially in dense suburbs. Uh, you start talking about firearms and uh, it yeah. just it gets really messy really quick, yeah. right? Um, yeah. our, 
our economic system fundamentally doesn't align with the ecological needs in the ecological system. And that's not a critique of like marketplace or anything like that, but rather um, the the way we understand private property as a land is really messy and complicated and uh, innately goes against uh, the way nature works, right? If I have a piece of land and it's near a ravine, my decisions affect that ravine, even if I don't own it. Um, right. And, and it, it's just not to like get into a political discussion, but it gets really complicated because of the way we understand private property. Yeah. I mean, when I think suburbs and I think the solution there, I'm thinking more, you know, you can feed a rabbit with a bag motor mower and a good lawn mix, right? You're not going to be shooting deer in the backyard of the suburbs. Yeah. I'd actually know some housing developments where working together with hunters they actually have archery hunters come in because that's a hell of a lot safer of a situation. Yeah. And for instance, when I lived, I lived in Arkansas for a few years, this place called Hot Springs Village. It's like the largest gated community there is. And the deer would literally start eating people at some point that they were in this place because they were so protected. And you had to go take a course and then you had to shoot so you could prove that you weren't incompetent. And then you had certain areas that you could set up in within certain confines and certain hours you could hunt. And that solution ended up working really, really well. Um, such that you were, you were able to take deer off license. You weren't even, you know, using your, your tags from your state issued license to be able to take deer there. And if you took more than you were, we were literally giving deer to people who didn't hunt, but wanted to eat. And that, that type of model might work, but you know, that worked because we weren't talking 10. These were, this was fairly upscale, not not wealthy, wealthy, but, up, you know, middle, upper middle class. Like people had yards that were an acre or so with a lot of buffers, well-designed, well, yeah. well-designed communities. And uh, I could see that working. But, yeah, most of those situations, what can we grow that animals eat that we manage? Because you're not going to be cracking off a 30-30 or a not six in, uh, in Sheboyganville, very, you know, east. As a hunter, I, I like to hunt, but I also don't want to do anything that's unsafe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's it's obviously complicated, uh, and that doesn't mean there aren't solutions. But, um, you know, as we think about the way food has to be produced and what it means to make food local uh, and what our, our uh, staple crops are, we definitely need to start thinking about how does that relate to the place we live, right? Um, and I think personally that... Um, most communities here in North America should be eating a lot more venison. Like that, I think that makes a lot of sense. We've created an ecosystem for them, whether or not on purpose, uh, with the way our suburbs are designed, right? We're an edge and, species uh, and we make edge everywhere, right? Yeah. I mean. So like it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but obviously it gets muddy when you start trying to figure out what that actually looks like. Uh, that doesn't mean there isn't a solution, just that it's gonna, there has, people have to come to the table and be, um, willing to, to talk about it. You know, and that brings up another species, a keystone species that was wiped out heavily throughout North America that no one talks about, and that's elk. So when I said there were buffalo, 50 million buffalo ranging mostly in the center of the United States, but not only, there were buffalo way further out to where the coastal people realized. Nobody was like, oh, my God, there were buffalo here. Um, but there's actually two species of elk that are 100% extinct. And one was mainly a West Coast species, and one was made mainly an East, East Coast species. Uh, the East Coast species actually was somewhat spotted even as adults, sort of fawn-like spots on them. I can't remember uh, the name of that species, but they were all through uh, what we today call Pennsylvania up into New England 
and even down into parts of the Carolinas and the West Coast species kind of intermingled with the elk that we had, the Rocky Mountain elk that we have today. I think they were the Roosevelt elk or something like that. And, and so there was a much broader existence. You're talking big animals here, you know, a big white tail. Uh, in Texas is 120 pounds. A big white tail in Pennsylvania is a couple hundred pounds. Uh, a big elk is an 800 pound, you know, plus browsing ruminant. Yeah. And we've lost that species as well. And again, I just, I'm all about freaking restore the wilderness. I just am also a pragmatist and I just yeah. don't see us having elk racing in the backyard of, you know, yeah, Mary bears, Catherine's, right. you know, uh, you know, place in, in, in Northern North Carolina. Uh, we have reintroduced elk to a lot of places. Um, but they're in very small protected pockets that they're able to, to function and exist. But that's another example of how like humans, in my opinion, have indigenous societies have traditionally relied very heavily, heavily on animal foods and, yeah. I, I I can tell I'm not in a disagreement with you on that, but I also think that within this space where we're trying to develop allies, even if we have a lot of things we disagree about, there's a ton we agree on. That seems to be like the biggest impediment within our the sphere of our own, if you want to put it that way right now, where we actually agree like this is bad. Um, but I just don't see us without using and, and And I guess my bigger problem is that the whole message from the the, the the corporate ecological system, right, is that animals are bad. Like animals are bad. And I, I don't know how we get past that. Yeah. And I think, um, to, to go a step further, a lot of those movements, movements also argue that humans are also bad for the ecosystem. And, uh, I think we both strongly disagree with that. Yes. That humans can be incredible at making ecosystems better. And that involves treating us much like animals and treating the animals around us much like us in the sense of there is a, there's a reason why there's so many deer. There's a reason why these animals lived here once before and the resources that they need still exist in most cases. And we can reintroduce them and make our ecosystems more resilient as long as we do our part, which is keeping their numbers in check. One of the main reasons that like invasives take foot and just take over landscapes is often because of deer browse. Deer browse clears out so many native species because those are preferred things to eat. And then the sec, like I mentioned earlier, you don't, you'll see the forest here and a lot of like oaks and things won't come up because the deer pressure is so heavy and there's so much animosity against the idea of like hunting more deer when we really need to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not a big advocate of any government, honestly, but the, the Pennsylvania state uh, management of the game really came a long way between the 1980s and now in understanding that they were vastly under harvesting and vastly over protecting those to the and, and the favoring of the harvesting of bucks. And the dude that did that, if you ever want to look him out, it's a guy named Gary Alda. I'm not even sure if he's still alive, but he was the guy that brought the black bear population back to where it was actually a thriving thing in Pennsylvania. Uh, and, and there is like, I don't think people understand that, that like we, we do have, I, I would say we have more deer in the United States right now than we did in say 1600. And that is yeah. something that people would just be shocked at. Okay. But they're not competing with all these elk. And somebody pointed out rightfully that it wasn't two elk species that went away. It's three. Cause there was four elk species. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that's not there. And there wasn't anywhere as much edge and they are an edge species. So when you 
like I grew up hunting both, let's say the farmlands and the mountain. And there were far more deer in the farmlands. And people would say, well, that's because they're eating corn. Well, you got to know a little bit about corn before you make that statement. So deer will eat corn when it's itty bitty and they will eat the ears of the corn once it starts to put grain on. So there's a whole period of time in there. There's no corn for the deer to be eating. I can tell you for a fact, they do not eat soybean plants. They do not like them. There's a reason. Maybe we shouldn't be eating a lot of them either. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they're um, also non-native, so that plays yeah. into it as well. But they don't, like, I have never seen a farmer worried about the deer eating their soybeans. And maybe somewhere there's a hungry enough deer that it's a problem, but I never saw a deer eat a soybean. I stood on stands right on the edge of soy fields, and I watched the deer walk right past the soybeans to eat the persimmon or whatever. Um, and, and so these deer have less competition. We've also destroyed the predators that were there. Then we've, like, created this culture of, like, I call it Disney culture. We must protect the animals sing songs to us and what have you instead of, you know, fulfill a role in the ecosystem. And we have this massive upswing in population with no level of control. And the only time the typical suburbanite cares is when they, the deer eats their flowers or the deer gets hit by their expensive Lexus. Like those are the two times that, that those folks actually are concerned about the population of the deer. And then they still don't want them thinned out. And I, I, I don't, again, I don't know how we speak to that in a way that makes those folks understand because we're fighting a corporate apparatus that that is convincing children's schools now that the reason that we have climate problems is because there's cows. And yeah. it just ignore like, so what do you want to do? Wipe out the Plains game in Africa next? Yeah. Like, and, like, haven't we wiped out enough things? Shouldn't we be restoring things at this point? Yeah, and that's, uh, like, it's, you know, I think about um, – when we talk about these relationships with the ecosystems, uh, that it is fundamentally community, like based in community, right? That we need to work with our community to understand these relationships because you can post things on the internet and like do stuff like have a podcast, which I do too, but without like building those relationships with people and helping them see the bigger picture of how ourselves, our food, uh, and the wildlife are all integrated into a bigger conversation we're not really going to solve these problems because otherwise the only voice they hear uh, other than like infighting on facebook or whatever is like corporate media and that's a problem yeah i would i would agree 100 with that well if you could do you got enough power you could do one thing one thing is like a agricultural director of the u.s or something you only get one because all of our solutions are very holistic like you could have one methodology you could you could gain traction that would be doable in the system we have. Because there's a lot of stuff I would say that, yeah, like I say all the time when people talk about political problems, like, well, what would you do? I do this, this, and this. We'll run for president. First of all, that's dumb. Second of all, president couldn't do it. So is there something you think we could do that would be doable in the current system with enough education that would make a real difference? Uh, I already said it before, but, like, making local food sexy. Uh, okay. I think you're starting to see that now a little bit with like, uh, foraging. Like p- people are starting to realize like, oh, we can get, I think this happened a lot with COVID, right? People are stuck at home. They started having, ex- trying to come up with excuses to go outside, started getting worried a little bit about where food was coming from and, you know, went outside for the first time and didn't have to be at work. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, oh, there's trees. I wonder if I can eat that thing right there. And like foraging has become a little bit cooler. Now the next step for that is, okay, why is there food there and how come there isn't more of it? 
or how do we think about food differently and what food looks like? And that's where, again, that, that ecosystem focused. What do I do so that there's more ramps? What do I do for all these, you know, forageable foods that makes the ecosystem healthier and contributes food for myself and my family and ultimately makes more resilient ecosystems? So if I could do anything, it would be how do I make local food sexy and accessible? Um, and how, and I think there would be a, a monumental change in how we relate to the ecosystem where that food comes from. Listen, I like that because there's no doubt that it markets well. Yeah. But something marketing well and something being quote unquote sexy is a different thing. Like to me, if it's like sex appeals to everybody, right? So there's yeah. like this demographic that like, oh, the farm to table movement. They literally like, well, I'm going to order the chicken. What was his name? You know, like that's, yeah. that's the level of local that they want and an explanation of where it's going. Um, where there is some, one of the things that we have in this country that if you haven't traveled internationally, you're not aware of is even in dense populated suburbs, the amount of usable land that we have that this can be done with is extreme. And it, what we would need to get your vision, in my opinion, would be, most, not, I was going to say everybody, but that's just a dumb word that never happens, right? I hate when anything on like this, everybody is talking. No, they're not. Um, but the majority of people in some way participating because there's a lot of people that the amount of whatever one thing could come out of their backyard or the border of their property is more than they would ever want or need. Or maybe they don't even like it. And I think that's part of how you make this work. Like there are certain things I can grow the hell out of. I don't need it. I, I can grow the heck out of sweet potato here. I'm pretty much carnivore. I eat green vegetables and animals. But if there was a, a system to tie into, it wasn't necessarily for profit, but where that thing could be, you know, used, and I say export is the wrong word, exported from my property into the local economy, Yeah. then maybe I'm a willing participant in that, even if that's not, because there's always going to be somebody that wants sweet potato fries. Right. I mean, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that either. Like I might not eat it, but if you want to eat them, I'll, here's, here's a great big purple Japanese sweet potato, which is non-native, but I think it's pretty, pretty safe. It's not going anywhere. It ain't got no not taking over. Yeah. No, it ain't got no feet. Right. Yeah. It, our, our season's not long enough for it to flower and produce seed. Uh, you know, and it, it's delicious. It's a nutritious crop. It's one of the, one of the crops that Okinawans, you know, say makes them so long live, whether it's true or not. That's, that's what they believe. And so there's, you know, or there's, you know, there's people who like my, my property so awful and it took me eight years before dandelions started showing up on their own. That's how rough this place was when I moved in and now they do grow here. But there's people, you know, that live 40 miles south of me that their whole yard is dandelion. They're trying to get her. That's a nutritious food source. No. Right. It might be not native, but it's here. That's one of those ones that ain't, it ain't going away. Right. It's yeah. never going to happen. You know, people spray it with chemicals and it comes back. Like it's like, whatever, dude, I've been through this before. And that's another thing that could be part of this type of like ecologically based natural. And I like the word forage. It's something I've tried to encourage people to start thinking like to manage your property where you can live like a small scale hunter gatherer in your own backyard. Yeah. You know, maybe that's from growing up foraging morels and shiitakes and or not shiitakes, uh, batakis and things like that in the Pennsylvania woods. Like you, when you go out and you, when you work because your grandfather's like, dig that up, plant those tomatoes, whatever. And then, you know, it, it's you, you go up on the mountain and you find matakis, which are the hen of the woods mushroom. And, you know, you cut one mushroom and it's three times the size of your head and you did literally nothing. 
Yeah. Right. And you did no harm to anything because you, you actually like remember that tree because it's going to grow back there again. Um, you start wondering, why are we why are we putting so much effort into uh, into tilling the soil here every year? Yeah. And I think like that points to and I think something we brought up repeatedly is this idea of like community and the importance of community, because, again, the you own a piece of land because that was the house you could afford. And, you know, whatever, that's where you ended up. It grow, it's really good for growing one particular thing and it's not what you want to eat, but it doesn't make sense for you to then fight that system to grow something you do want to eat. When three houses down, someone might have the ideal conditions for what you do want to eat. And, uh, you know, building that, that community, like I said before about like, you know, if everyone has maple, uh, sugar maple trees in your, in their yards, cause you live in a wetlands area, um, instead of everyone individually going out and tapping and then boiling it down, having a cooperative of people that are like, I, I want to do this. This is what I'm into. Everyone gets a piece because everyone owns some of the maple trees. Uh, but we can do it more efficiently, more effectively by partnering together and taking advantage of the things that are already here and want to be here. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think like most people, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, if you care about foraging or being, you know, closely attached to nature, whatever, People can agree with that because it makes a lot of sense. And at the end of the day, it helps us build community and uh, forces us to spend time with each other, even if we don't see eye to eye on things like politics. Yeah. And I mean, I think you have to make to make participation heavy. You have to make participation easy. So there would be people that maybe have four big, beautiful sugar maples on their property. Don't care about maple syrup. Don't want to be involved in the physical component of harvest or whatever it would be like. Oh, Bill the, maple, Bill the Maple guy's going to come put four traps, taps in my tree once a year and, and leave with some buckets. God bless Bill. Let yeah. him do it. Like, you know, and that's a community thing where you start to develop trust again, where I, I am actually a private property advocate. I think that, that it, it actually solves more problems than it causes if you have ethical people with the property. Um, but what we, we ended up with is this very isolated tome that we live in, right? Like, I'm not going back that far again. I'm talking seventies and eighties here. You know, I'm a young grandfather at this point in my, my ride through life. And so when I say back in the 1980s, I guess some people think that's a long, that's not a long time ago. And I remember like every year when the blueberries would come in up on the mountains, like I said, they were the reparative species in a lot of these mining communities. We would have 30, 40 people up there picking blueberries together and had different like there were people that were maybe a little older and they weren't going to be out there with the dexterity to pick the berries anymore, but we'd be bringing them back and dumping them on. Basically they were trays from the high school cafeteria that were appropriated at some point in time. And they were, they would sort through them and like pick out all the red and the green ones that weren't ripe. And then whatever there was, each family would take their share of those berries. And we did that with blackberries. We did that with blueberries and we did it with wild strawberries. And I can't even tell you how it started. It just was a thing. And I, but what I do know is the area that I'm from that it's not going on right now. It was like once the older generation passed on and a lot of people such as myself with no opportunities, we left. It just kind of, it turned it basically it's a mess down now. Yeah. And I think a whole different discussion, but you know, and I think that points to like, how do you build community? Uh, And that's really difficult Um, in the modern, you know, I'm going to pick up my cell phone, you know, the modern era, it's hard to have a reason to go and build community with other people, right? You, you go home from work and you watch TV or play on your phone and 
comment in someone's Facebook or whatever it might be. But uh, we don't have those third spaces the way we have historically. Uh, bars are too expensive. Um, there's also a whole other, you know, it it gets messy with the the world we live in, suburbanization and bars. Um, and we we really struggle to figure out how do we build community. But I think ecology can because I think even most suburbs have like local hiking trails and things like that where they're accessible. It's not a consumptive habit like going to a bar where you need to spend money to drink to have an excuse to be near other people. You can just go in the woods and hike and forage and all these other things. Uh, and I think that's where we start to figure out how to build these communities, bring back these practices. And, um, you know, chances are the, the practice of picking blueberries that you were talking about was probably way more efficient than you or myself going out in the woods, picking them all, then sifting through them all. Yeah. Like, because everyone gets good at what they do. Um, and they, you know, it's, it just works better as a community. Well, you know, actually, when you say that, like my dad and I might take a walk up the mountain and fill up a couple quart jars without the rest of the group because you always did the group thing when the it was a peak of harvest that there were smaller areas. Like, so even that would be done. But I'll tell you what, what nobody did, nobody went to Home Depot or Lowe's, bought two gallon pots of blueberries, brought them home and planted them in their yard. Like anything that was easily forageable was seasonal. It was harvest during that season. That's what you got for that year. And why in the world would you put time, money, and resources into it? And we have a comment up right now from Twitch, from Hunters, and he says food is too easy now. And I, I think that, that, like, it's what is easy food now? Like, when I was a kid, you know it was easy food. Easy food was, you know, you, they closed school on the first day of deer season. You shot a deer, and as a 12-year-old kid, you provided 80 pounds of meat for your family for the year. That's pretty easy food. But today, easy food is, it's a dollar menu at, or whatever, it's not a dollar anymore. I don't eat fast food, but I remember like the dollar menu. When I, when I was young and broke and I first moved to Texas, I lived on the freaking Jack in the Box value meal, the Taco Bell value meal, ramen noodles, uh, stovetop stuffing and whole chickens. Like that was half of my diet back then. It was to complete crap, but like you're broke, but it made it easy. And so what is easy has changed because a lot of this stuff isn't like the way you're talking about doing this is actually a lot less work, right? And it's it's also, it's pulsating work. Like maybe like you might work really hard for a little while and it, it is much more the way that indigenous societies live. You know, that the average amount of work a person did in those societies was about an hour and a half a day. But there were bursty is maybe the better word I'm looking for, bursty periods where something needed to be done and everybody turned out to get it done. Yeah, and I think the... The communicative, the community, uh, community aspect of it, of being able to socialize while you're doing it versus that isolation, uh, that atomization that happens when you go and plant two blueberry bushes in your backyard and then go and harvest them. You're not talking to your neighbors. You're not catching up with friends. You're not doing any of these things that are, um, inherent to what we need as humans and also what we need to create, uh, communities where people are accountable. So you talked about like you're an advocate for private property. That works especially well when you know your neighbors, they know you, you know everyone on your street, and there is accountability if you are throwing tons of fertilizer down and it's washing down to the watershed, right? Yeah. Like your neighbors know you. It's not like, huh, I wonder, you know, I should go talk to that person. I don't know them, and you have no reason to care whether or not they like you, right? Like, it's Yeah, I mean, where I grew up, everybody knew everybody, and even people that didn't really get along, didn't like each other. 
still got along. Yeah, and like, I, you had yeah. to deal with each other. You had to. Yeah, and the, the atomization of like social media and just like like I said that you don't do these communal things, going out and picking blueberries in season or you know whatever it might be. Um, the loss of those things has had catastrophic effects on our relationships with our community. I would agree with that. Tell folks about your podcast and your website. Sure. So uh, my podcast is the Poor Poles Almanac. Uh, we focus on a lot. We, we cover a lot of the same stuff you do, focused on uh, prepping in from a community perspective, um, eco, you know, ecosystem restoration, uh, agroecology, which uh, frames basically what we've been talking about within the context of um, its relationship to the, the people managing and stewarding the landscape. Uh, and yeah, that, that's basically it. We, we're, if you're into food stuff, come, come check it out. Yeah. I, I, I think you, the folks should get over and give you a listen to, and, and I hope that like there are some points where we were debating today, different ideas. I know that politically we're, 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 we're quite different. And I think that if you can't get past that in this space, I don't know where you're going to. Like, if it's like, you know, he thinks this way and I think that way, so we're not going to talk. Like, then this hour and 20 minute, very informative conversation for both of us, but everybody listening to it and everybody that will listen to it doesn't happen. And, and I think we have to get beyond that. I, I think back to this time you're talking about community and I can tell you what I never heard from any of the adults around me. And I think one of the differences was that kids spent a lot of times around adults back then too, rather than, you know, we had that freedom of Gen X. But you also, when you did stuff, you were with uncles and like the extended family and like you're integrated. So you kind of were drawn up, uh, toward, toward being more adults. So you spent a lot of time with adults fishing, hunting, you know, going out foraging, all this stuff. Never heard any of them make more than a passing statement about politics. And, and I, I couldn't tell you like, was my great uncle Pete a Democrat or a Republican? I have no, I, and I spent so much time with that man. I have no idea where now we have these political ideologies that are, you might as well, like the politicians might as well do it. Like some of us might as well too, like, you know, patches on, on your <laughs> arm, like a race car driver. Like, you know, this is where my position on this is, and this is my position on that. Like at some point, don't we realize we're just human beings that all, all have the same basic needs. Yeah. And, and until we can have these discussions like this, I don't know how we, you progress beyond where we're at. Yeah. And I think this is something that, uh, people experience both on the left and the right. You know, it's like if society collapses, like just, you know, in this theoretical situation, um, you know, people are like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, me and my friends and my internet friends or internet community, we're going to like band up and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, you're, you're conservative neighbor, your anarchist other neighbor, and then your milquetoast liber- uh, liberal neighbor are all the people you're going to be relying on. And you're all going to disagree on a lot of stuff, but you're still a community. And in my personal opinions and my hot take is that's actually usually better. Like I would rather be around people that disagree with me because at the end of the day, if everyone thinks the same exact way, like how, how does anyone challenge their own beliefs and evolve uh, if you're always around people that think the same exact thing as you? Yeah. I think one of the things that puts you in touch with that, if you've ever run a company or a workforce, and, and, you know, more than a dozen people working for you that you have the ability to fire. You, you understand why the, the fantasy of it's just going to be this group of people doesn't work. There's never a time I had more than a half dozen people or more working for me. There wasn't one person that I wanted to fire that second. But you, you know what? You don't fire them. 
I don't have a replacement. And so there's a lot of, I have to work with what I have, right? So that, that lady that lives across the street from you or the guy down the road that puts up the wrong, whatever, that's who you're going to have when hard times hit your neighborhood. And, uh, I, I get a lot of questions about, you know, survival groups and stuff like that. And I'm always like, you know what, man, I don't want to tell anybody no to something they want to try, but, in my experience, you usually end up with everybody that supposedly agrees fighting with each other over a little piddly shit. And it's because you don't learn to actually deal with people as they are and who they are. And so anyway, man, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I appreciate you being with us. The audio version will go out about an hour from right now. For everybody listening to the live stream down in the video notes down there, there's all kinds of yummy links, including a link that says, that it will be available with all the resources and links and stuff available on my website an hour from now. And if you click it right now and you're watching it live, it won't work because we're not done yet, but we will be soon. Uh, I really appreciate you being with us today, Andy. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. With that wrapped up, let me remind you guys that one of the ways you can help support this show that requires no real effort, no real out-of-pocket costs is just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day today is the same one yesterday because it did make it on the show because it was such a long show and a live feed with John and Nicole. Uh, but I have three items in the T-Spaz catalog. I have more than three, but I have three items under the pets uh, category that I consider essential to the to the you know ongoing routine care of my dogs and my cats. This is a big one. BioGroom waterless pet shampoo. Now, why would you have a waterless pet shampoo? Well, in the write up on it and he's now since passed away, my buddy Max was pretty tough to give a bath to in the middle of winter. And sometimes he stinks. My buddy Charlie at times could be really tough to give a bath to. I can get it done in the write-up. The dog smelled like like Cheetos in the garbage. That's the only way I could describe the smell. And it was also like 55 degrees outside. He's not a dog that you really want to try to put a tub in the house. Big boy. And uh, so I didn't, you know, I didn't want to have to do that. My dog Lucy, I, the one bath we've given her with a hose, I thought she was going to have a nervous breakdown. This is a dog we took in off the streets. She was already full grown. I didn't get to do any puppy training with her. I was afraid we were going to get bit. I was committed. I had to get the soap off her. I'm never doing it again. Dogs, if you think about dogs in nature, who gives a, who gives a wolf or a coyote or a fox a bath? What they really need is a good brushing, and they need the right oils in their skin. This stuff works. You use this on your dog, you won't, unless the dog gets in the mud or something like that where you have to, you have to spray them off to get the mud out of their hair, you won't have to give them a bath, at least not very often. I haven't given my dogs a bath, like a conventional bath, in years. I have, again, sprayed dirt off Charlie after he went in a, a kiddie pool and then rolled in the dirt. That's about it. I ha and they are, if you look at them, they're beautiful, their hair shines. This is one of the reasons why. I have two other products. One is the Zymox spray for hot spots and things like that. I used that on myself. And the other is the eucalyptus ear wipes. These three things are the routine maintenance I give my dogs. And those of you who have been here know my dogs are beautiful, healthy animals. And this is a big part of why it makes my life easier. It makes their life easier. And yeah, you'll find out about a thing called a Ferminator if you read the write-up as well. It's a brush and how I use all these things together to keep my dogs healthy and happy, and I don't have stress as an owner for myself, and I don't have stress in the animals. 
because you know some dogs are cool with a bath, some are really not. Bell's kind of okay with a bath. Charlie not so happy. Again, Lucy has a freaking nervous breakdown. It looks like somebody's torturing her. Try this stuff. You'll see why. It comes in a small amount. It also comes in a refill, one gallon jug. Try the small size first if you haven't yet, and then you save a ton of money by buying the the, the big one. And remember, if you're going to be buying stuff through TSPAS and you end up on Amazon.com, you should be buying it with an Amazon gift card that you buy inside the Fold app and getting 5% or more of your purchase back in Bitcoin on money you're going to spend anyway. But go through TSPAS and help support the show. Again, tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you help us out in the work that we do and all my reviews. It's interesting. You might want to go in the comments of this one and read somebody that calls me out and like, did you have somebody else write the copy for you? This doesn't sound legit. And, and my response to him, I was actually kind of nice in it. I think that was all the way back in 2017 that that comment came in. And I think I read it on the air back then. That says something there, too. Like, the first time I brought this product to you was 2017. And it's still in a TSPAS catalog, and there's a reason. Try it. You'll like it. You'll see why it has such great reviews on Amazon with many happy pet owners just like yourself. Also, if you are not yet a member of the Members Support Brigade, that's right, the MSB, you should be. You'd get discounts on a lot of stuff you're going to buy anyway, including from both of the sponsors we had at the beginning of today's show. There's more than 60 other vendors there. The MSB is the way that I'm able to do this show every day for you, except when I go away, right? Lots of, lots of rhymes in there. Not intentional. But yeah, really, guys, without the MSB, there is no way I could be a full-time podcaster. The way I would have to do it then, I would be having to make deals with big companies instead of the small businesses I have as sponsors, and they would own me. That would be how it would work. You want free independent media like the survival podcast you got to support us but i'm not one of these guys like hey give me free money and i'll give you like one extra episode a week i think it's crap i don't put any of my content behind a paywall none zero i don't do that i don't have a patreon and if you really like me then i'll i'll talk to you i talk to everybody you send me an email you're likely if you follow the formula you're likely to get a response if you dm me you might get a response i'm not good at answering dms but it won't be because i'm ignoring you i don't do that shit but the way I am able to do that is have a very simple pro- uh, product, a discount membership club, basically. 50 bucks a year. If you don't get your money back, it's because you didn't use it. So it puts the money right back in your pocket. Most people make money off it, and I get to do what I do. And, and I think that's the way to be, and that's why I instituted that in my first year. I took this show. People ask me, how did you take this show from zero, episode one, to a full-time business in 18 months? And I say, I really did it in 12. I had a, a business partnership that I wanted to end on a, on a, on a really nice way with. And so the, he had, that partner asked me to stay another six months. It was really 12 months. MSB is how I did that. And I have people that have been MSB members now for 14 years. That means we're doing something right with it. So give us a shot. Give us a try. Um, I've not really had a lot of people tell me, you know, hey, the MSB sucks. I want my money back. It's happened once or twice, and I, all I ever say is, here you go. Here you go, no problem. Anyway, with that, I'm ready to wrap things up. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Remember, uh, you guys you should be using the Fold Card. And, of course, you find all my stuff at thesurvivalpodcast.com, but I put my Bitcoin content out also on the Bitcoin Breakout. You want to learn, learn more about the Fold Card, thebitcoinbreakout.com forward slash fold. And, again, if you're not using it, 
I think you hate money. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Yeah.